Welcome to the Audiobook Speakeasy. I'm Rich Miller, and I'm your host here at the Speakeasy. This is where you'll meet narrators, coaches, engineers, and other audiobook professionals, as well as some listeners who'll be sharing what they look for in a good audiobook. If you're interested in audiobook production, you've come to the right place. So come on in, grab a drink, pull up a chair, and join us for a friendly chat about audiobooks. Joining me tonight in the Speakeasy is an audiobook producer at one of the largest publishing houses in the world, Penguin Random House. Julie Wilson, thanks for joining me in the Speakeasy tonight. Thank you for having me. It is my pleasure. What are you drinking tonight? I am drinking a mocktail over here. So I have a strawberry lemonade with a squeeze of lime going. Um, I'm going to go for a run later tonight, so I wanted to have uh, just a little virgin cocktail over here. Well, I love all the citrus. We do a lot of citrus here. I go through bags of lemons and limes, and uh, we love the citrus. And I can completely understand if you're going for a run, not having any alcohol to kind of uh, trip you up on the road. Yeah, exactly. I am not a runner. I am a cyclist, and I tend to not drink before I go for a ride. But I'm not going for a ride later, so I am having a drink. And uh, I'm having a lime ricky tonight, or otherwise known as a gin ricky. Uh, basically just gin and soda and, uh, the juice of half a lime. So again, citrus here as well. Um, and I'm, I'm using a kind of a different kind of gin. Uh, it's getting a little more popular now. It's a barreled gin. So gin is typically not aged, but, uh, they've started aging it now in barrels and it kind of imparts a little bit of what you might get with a whiskey that's been in, uh, been in casks for a while. So, mm-hmm. um, I'm having my Ricky and you're having your strawberry lemonade. Thanks a lot for coming in. Cheers. Yeah. Cheers. So, uh, so Julie, where are you from? I'm actually from Midtown Manhattan. No um, kidding. And, and you're in New York right now, right? Yes. I am a New Yorker through and through. <laughs> no kidding. A native New Yorker. And have, have you been there the whole time since you grew up there? Yeah. I mean, I disappeared, uh, for college for four years. I went up to Maine, uh, for a liberal arts school for Colby College, but uh, yeah, I've I've been here since I was born. Um, I actually grew up in an artistic housing complex in the heart of Midtown Manhattan. Um, wow! So you've got the arts in your blood. Yeah, I kind of do. So my parents initially moved to the city because my mom was coming here to get her uh, master's and PhD in psychology, and my dad was an actor in musical theater on Broadway. So. Um, that's kind of what brought them here. And my dad's background got them into this Manhattan, uh, it's called Manhattan Plaza. It's uh, it's an artistic housing complex filled with directors, actors, painters, musicians, you know, any artistic profession under the sun that you can think of. Um, and yeah, it, it, it kind of has served for decades as a bit of an artistic incubator. And it allowed artists to have a, affordable housing in the heart of Times Square, um, which is total chaos these days, but wow, yeah. Back, yeah, back then being so close to Broadway was such an asset. So yeah. Sure. Especially if your dad was working on Broadway. Yeah, absolutely. That's fantastic. And you said you went to Colby college in Maine. I did. Not I really, did. Not really familiar with uh, Colby small school. It's yeah, it's a liberal arts school. When I went there, it was about 1600 kids. Now I think it's closer to 2000 and maybe even growing from that. But, uh, yeah, when I went up, decided to go up to Maine, most New Yorkers that I knew thought I was a little bit nuts. <laughs> um, just because it was, it was such a drastic change from the city. But I've always had a bit of a, an outdoorsy spirit, and you know, I I felt the need to get out of here for at least a little while. Um, and 
it was up there. I was an English major, creative writing minor. I was the editor of our arts and entertainment section of our newspaper. So, um, yeah, I, I really went up there to incubate my own artistic process, which was writing at the time and really the study of literature. That's very cool. The, um, the the numbers that you quoted for for Colby sound very much like where I went to school, and and I think it all has to do with revenue at this point. Uh, I went to Occidental College, and the population there was also about sixteen hundred in um, in Eagle Rock, California, real close to Pasadena, and uh, beautiful liberal arts campus and great education. And at the time when I started way back in the dark ages, I think that every entering class was four hundred and twenty five. That's what they capped it at. And I went mm-hmm. back at some point for a reunion, I don't know, six or eight years ago, and uh, and I listened to the president give a give a talk, and he was talking about the incoming class being whatever it was, six or seven hundred, and he spoke briefly about the fact that it's uh, it's all a matter of how they can get by with the amount of revenue that they're able to do through fundraising and grants and everything else that they do. So mm-hmm. uh, I think that the increased sizes are probably just due to the way the world is going. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I guess it must uh, change the tone of the school a little bit, too. I mean, I think Colby still feels very intimate and whatnot. But, um, you know, you kind of had to create your culture up there. And oh, yeah. everyone, every student, every professor was responsible for that. So it was a really nice kind of small town feel in a certain respect. Yeah, yeah, no, I would I would say the same thing about Oxy. So that sounds very cool. So you were doing uh, English and creative writing. So definitely, definitely getting the creative juices going up there. Yeah. And uh, when people ask me how I got into this industry, it really is kind of a very obvious blend of my family's background and my own artistic interests. So my dad was an actor for a number of years. Now he's transitioned into social work and my sister's actually an actor. So, um, but I was always a little bit more behind the scenes. I was, I was a dancer on stage for, I mean, through high school anyway. And, uh, I like performing in my own right, but I think because acting was always my sister's thing, I kind of veered into other territory. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, but producing audiobooks really blends, you know, my understanding of actors and acting and performance um, with my love of literature and the written word. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. I'm I'm interested though. You said that your dad is now doing social work. Yep. Did that have anything to do with what your mom was doing with her uh, her master's and PhD in psychology? Absolutely. I think she definitely had an influence on him. I mean, psychology has always been so much of my family dynamic. You know, people ask me, you know, oh, what's your religion? And we never really were raised with religion. But my mom often said that, you know, we believe in people to a certain extent. It's all about kind of understanding people in my family. And I mean, as an actor, you have to do that as well. So you know, at first to a lot of people, I think outside of the arts, it might seem like a weird transition to go from acting to social work, but it's all about set understanding motivation and understanding other people and empathy and all that. Um, so actually there's been a number of former actors from my parents' building who have transitioned into some form of therapy. That's fantastic. Um, that makes a lot of sense to me. I, I remember thinking at one point when I was taking an, an acting class at the, uh, in San Francisco uh, with Bobby Wineapple at Sideways Studios, um, I, I started thinking, this is a lot like therapy. This is this is all about getting in touch with emotions and mm-hmm. really understanding what makes you as the character do what you're supposed to be doing in the same way that as an actual person, you should kind of understand what your what your motivations are for doing what you're doing. 
Mm-hmm. So. And writing the same way, you know, when you're writing a character, when you're thinking about character, it's all about it's all about understanding people. Yeah, yeah. No, that sounds great. Sounds great. So, uh, so after you got out of out of college, uh, what did you do first? So I've been kind of a lifer here at Penguin Random House. Um, I actually started my junior summer uh, as an intern under Dan Zitt and Cheryl Herman, who at the time was running our Books on Tape Library Marketing Group. Um, so my, I was studying abroad in Bristol, England, and I had applied for random houses. It was random house at the time. It wasn't penguin random house. So I had applied for random houses internship program and they either offered me an internship in contracts or in audiobooks. and contracts sounded fairly boring to me at the time. (laughs) And, um, they were producing actually Harry Potter seven on audio and I would do anything possible to touch that book, to bring coffee to anyone who was touching that book. So, um, so yeah, I kind of, I worked my butt off that summer and stayed in very close touch with people I'd worked with there and with HR and, Actually, senior year, I served as a sort of ambassador for Penguin Random House at my college, which which is funny looking back on it because I'd only had about two months of experience in publishing, and I was giving these talks around campus about what publishing was all about. <laughs> um, but I was really lucky because I graduated in 2008, and that's you know when the economic downturn hit, and a lot of people were getting out of jobs, and there wasn't jobs for a lot of grads, and. I was really lucky because I started as Amanda DiCerno's assistant, who's still our publisher today. Um, So, yeah, I kind of came in on the admin level after internship. And um, actually, then Dan and Amanda had a conversation at one point um, after I'd been on the team for about two, two and a half years. And Dan poached me back onto the producer's team. And I grew from a production coordinator to a producer to managing people to now my current role, which is... um, I'm an executive producer and our audio special projects manager. That's um, that's great. So you've been there for ten years now, ever since graduating, and and, yeah. bef- and before graduating. Yeah, it's been it's been eleven years, con- in including that junior summer. And um, yeah, it's great. It, it's kind of an anomaly, at least, or it's not an anomaly, but it's rare these days because so many people move companies and whatnot. But we have such a long-term tenured team in our group. And I think it's just because, I mean, so many things have happened to the audio industry over the past decade. But um, at the heart of it is we just have such a team. It's like an eccentric family over at Penguin Random House. We're, <laughs> we really are. We're all really close. Sometimes we're too close. Like we, we've all known each other for years and years and years. And um I always tell people when we're hiring, it's like, good luck getting out of here because no one ever leaves. Um. (laughs) (laughs) That's great, though. It sounds like a great team. And uh, having been there for so long, I mean, it certainly sounds like you did uh, a lot of things coming up through the ranks to where you are now. Yeah, it's um, well, I think for anyone who's been in the industry this long or even longer, you've seen that 10 years ago, no one really cared about audio. We we existed. We were doing fine. But think back then when I started, we were doing maybe 300 books a year. And um, now we're at a thousand and still growing a little bit. So mm-hmm. and, you know, everyone and their mother who I talk to listens to audiobook. It's kind of like, it's really nice to when people ask me what I do for a living, because people are actually really genuinely excited about audiobooks and asking questions and all that. Um, and I think that that came with the digital revolution that came with podcasts becoming popular. Um, mm-hmm. 
so yeah, I've seen so many changes over the years. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, I have as well. I've I've only been active doing audiobooks for uh, the past few years, but uh, but I was exposed to them a good. I think it was about ten years ago now when I was doing some um, pro bono work for Recording for the Blind and Dyslexic, now Learning Ally, and mm-hmm. there was there was another nonprofit in San Jose called Books Aloud, which was also uh, primarily novels, whereas Learning Ally is primarily um, school school type work, uh, textbooks. But, mm-hmm. um, but, uh, both of them I thought were, were good experience. And then I kind of got out of it and now I've been back in, but seeing the changes, even from what little bit I did back then uh, as a volunteer to what's happening now in the commercial world, a uh, lot of changes. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So you went through uh, a lot of different positions, including producer, and now you're an executive producer. So what's the difference there between a producer and an executive producer? There's not too much of a difference. I mean, in our terminology, it's more just, it's just a statement that you have a little bit more experience than a producer. That's kind of the only distinction. Um, An executive producer to me almost makes it sound a little bit more removed from the process, which isn't the case. Um, But yeah, it's just kind of, it's the way we express that someone's been working there and has a little bit more experience under their belt. So so what are the primary duties then of a producer or in the case of somebody who has more experience, an executive producer? Yeah, it's, um, so we all, all the producers at Penguin Random House produce the same amount of titles if you work five days a week for us. Um, and, uh, we're all doing around 90 to a hundred bucks a year. Um, so our primary job is, you know, working on casting, working very closely with our authors. So, one of the principles behind um, the way we produce is that we're in touch with every single one of our authors. We don't produce a book without talking to them about what our vision is for the book, without getting their input if they want to give it, um, without presenting them with you know casting choices or at least our d- idea of what voice would best serve their work. So our our job's a bit. So I would say the process starts. Um, every season when the producers sit down at a round table and we divvy up, up all of the titles, kind of like a fantasy draft or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and you kind of pick off your, your, your top titles, the one you most want to work on first until all the books are taken. And from there we all, you know, go into our little cubby holes and start reading. And with each book, we start to think about, you know, what voice would best serve, this story or voices, or do we need sound effects or do we need music or what, how can we best translate this book to audio? Um, and from there we start reaching out to authors. We craft our author letters, um, which go out via email, which kind of say, you know, this is why I loved your book. This is what resonated with me. Um, these are the voices I'm considering. What do you think? Any other kind of random tidbits that we might need to ask them about. Um, and then once we lock down casting, we, uh, we send it off to the studio with a director and uh, an actor and you know, we, that that's when the producers step back a little bit and move on to the next project. But we're always juggling so many projects at once at this point, you know, there's, there's very little gap in time between projects. How many, how many books at one time do you normally find yourself working on? It's so hard to judge simply because books are in different stages of the process and we're always, you know, cause something's in post-production I'm looking at quality control notes while I'm casting another book, while I'm talking to an author about a different book. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. so, you know, we, I think 
this, it varies, but this month I'd say I'm working on around 11, 12 books. Um, Yeah. That is a lot to juggle. Yeah. So it's a lot, it's a lot of juggling. Um, yeah, it's become very much a project management job because there is, you have to be very organized. You have to be very proactive. Um, what's kind of nice of what I've always loved about my role is that, um, again, we're very team oriented. We're always throwing around casting ideas with each other. We're talking about various voices. If we have a tricky casting job or commiserating with each other, or if something goes really well, we're sharing that, but we also are very autonomous and independent at the same time. So even though we're sharing all of that, we're always going back into our whole own desk or cubbyhole, whatever you want to call it. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, going and immersing ourselves in our own process. Sure. So uh, it's not really ruled by committee. It's the person who's in charge is actually in charge, but it's always good to get some input from people who know the job. Yeah. And that's how, um, that's how we learn about new voices from each other. Um, it's, you know, whenever we don't really have genres. So even though I might be inclined to work on, you know, I love working on middle grade books or YA books. I, I like working on comedy memoirs or, you know, whatever else, but we all work on all the genres. Um, but if there's something that's a little bit out of my wheelhouse that I'm assigned to, um, you know, someone who I work with might have a better idea of who a better casting choice would be than I might come up with myself. So, and by, and by that process, we all become better producers. Sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. That sounds great. I'm, I'm really impressed by the fact that you are so, you keep the authors so involved in the process. I've always had this impression that if your book is published by a big publishing house and your contract is such that the publishing house has the audio rights, I've always Mm -hmm. sort of assumed that, okay, you're done. Thanks for writing your book. And uh, we'll, (laughs) we'll let you know when it's out on audio. I, I, it's not like I have any data to, to back that up. It's just that I've always sort of assumed that with a big publishing house, they're going to be taking over. And it sounds like that's not at all the case. Yeah, I think it definitely varies. Uh, every publishing house has a different approach. Um, for us, it's nice because we kind of keep this small boutique feel while being a part of this giant Goliath of a publishing house. Um, but, you know, having our authors happy is really important to us. And actually, it's one of the I think there's so many parts of my job that I really do love and that I'm really passionate about. But um, working with authors and working with actors and working with directors are three of the biggest highlights because I really love that connection that you form um, over the creative work. And, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll come in with a vision and the the author will have an idea that you know, they might have a music background, so they want to add, add music to a program. And it's something I might not have considered for that book. Um, but it always adds something extra to the book that, you know, I might not have thought of on, on, ugh, on my own. So that that's kind of an interesting point that I, I haven't talked to too many other people about. I know that the um, kind of the general consensus at this point is music bad. Um, but But I know that there are some books that have more or less, some books that have music at the beginning or at the beginning of chapters. Um, what's your take on where that's going uh, as we move forward into the uncharted territory of audiobooks where uh, things are changing so quickly? Do you think that music is going to play more of a part? It's so funny because it's such a personal preference. Um, you know, for me, there are certain series that I love that there's music at the beginning. For instance, Harry Potter, the audiobook. I can't think about that series without the like musical jingle at the front. It's kind of helps draw you into the story. Mm -hmm. Um, But I talk to other producers who actually 
absolutely loathe it when there's music. They're like, just get to the story. I don't care about this jingle that someone puts on the start of a book. Um, I think we're appropriate. It can add something really nice. And I feel like that's also a nice segue into talking about kind of sound effects and kind of mm-hmm. multimedia versions of audiobooks. You know, um, we just released uh, the book Obsidia, which is the third book in the series of this very, um, very kind of interact. It's not interactive. How would I describe it? There's tons of sound effects. There's millions of different voices. Um, and it is, it's a different experience of an audiobook because it's not just someone reading. It's kind of more immersive in a wor- different way. Mm-hmm. And um, my colleague, Nick Marrelli, who produced it, he was really involved with the authors on that and choosing different sound effects and, um, you know, different ways to uh, make certain voices more robotic sounding. And I've always described audiobooks as kind of the splice between a movie and a book, you know, because someone's really giving you a lot of the story you're not you're imagining but someone's giving you their interpretation of it Mm -hmm. and I think adding sound effects and music kind of veers more into that territory um I don't know I'm excited to see where it all goes something that I'm excited about and I, I don't know if this will have or if or when I think it's more of a when this will have an effect on our industry but I'm very interested in VR and where all that's going. I play video games a lot in my spare time, which uh, Caitlin Gehring over at Harper, she's a producer over there. She and I are always palling around about that or PJ Oakland. And I have talked about video games as well, but mm-hmm. I don't know, technology is evolving so quickly that I'm, I'm just always fascinated and I'm always keeping my ears perked up on what's happening next. Um, I think while, why I've evolved into this role that I have essentially, um, you know, PRH created this role of audio special projects manager for me because I've always been kind of reinventing the wheel in certain ways. Um, Even as a production coordinator, I was, would see inefficiencies in our process and figure out new ways to reinvent the process to make it easier for everyone or automate things, or I don't know. I always, I'm always trying to think one step ahead of where we are. And, um, you know, Dan Zed and I partner on that a ton. Um, and Ahab, um, our online narrator database is the result of that. Um, so I don't know where we're going, but I'm, I'm really excited to see, you know, VR technology, music, sound effects. I don't know. We're, I think we're going to continue to evolve. We've definitely changed over the past decade. Definitely. And I'm, I'm fascinated to see where it goes. I just, I think of where things were 10 years ago and where they are today. And I think 10 years from now, I don't even know if I'm going to recognize this industry. Mm-hmm. Very different. Um, and, and I had heard about um, the, what was the title that you were talking about, Anne? Uh, Ob- Obsidio? Oh, Obsidio. Yeah. yeah. In the series, yeah. I had heard of that series um, from somebody recently, and I uh, didn't realize that it was a full cast recording, but that's also something that is becoming a little more popular. I, I look forward to seeing where that where that leads as well. But you mentioned AHAB. So mm-hmm. let's talk about AHAB. First of all, is that an acronym? Uh, so AHAB, it comes from uh, AHAB and Moby Dick. It's uh, the search for the the great whale, or uh, as we like to call it, the search for the perfect voice. Okay, um, so I saw the I saw the graphic and I thought, okay, so that's playing the Moby Dick angle. But I was just wondering if it got its start as you know, it stood for something else. Uh, I should create an acronym for that. <laughs> 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 a little second layer there. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, so it, uh, it, so Ahab, so Danzit came up with the idea for Ahab, I want to say about three years ago. Um, and essentially, he came up with the idea of creating an online narrator database. And he brought me on uh, shortly thereafter to help him hone his vision for it and help him grow it out. Um, since then, um, I've taken on a lot of the responsibility of it, but we work very closely on it together. Um, and what's been really cool about it is we we soft launched it about two years ago. And for anyone who had an account two years ago and they haven't logged back in or they haven't looked at their profile, please look at your profile again and please come back and fix it up and all that because we really weren't using it two years ago. Um, we kind of were playing with it. We were doing some testing with it. And I would say a year ago after I had been brought up, brought on to help refine it, um, that's when the producers started using it. And that's when it became a usable tool. The glitches were taken out. You know, we were working very closely with our development team to um, make this in a tool, into a tool that would be useful for us internally. And then from that, a tool that would work very well for actors and their agents too. Um, so if I look back a year ago and I was thinking about this earlier when I was thinking about coming on this podcast. Um, it's crazy that it was only a year ago. Um, I, I that, was thinking the same thing. <laughs> yeah. Like all a year ago, all of the producers at PRH were producing differently. They were all finding their actors in very different ways. My method back then was I would go onto audible and I would actually search by um, publisher to see who my competitors were using to find new talent to see who we weren't hiring. Mm -hmm. um, I would also go through PRH's website um, and see who the other producers were casting that I didn't know about. Just finding the Dion's website was useful too. You know, there was just these roundabout ways of casting. And then when we really launched Ahab as something that was a usable tool, all of the producers started using it. And, um, through talking to them regularly, getting their feedback and fine tuning it in a way that it was useful to them, it became this searchable database where we're doing a vast number of our casting via Ahab these days. And that's crazy that that was only a year ago when we really started pushing it. Um, yeah, that's quite a quite a meteoric rise for the tool that you've uh, that you created or modified at least. Yeah, I. Uh, I think I told Dan when I came back from Scott Brick and Johnny Heller's workshop, LA workshop in January that, um, that I spoke at, I said, you know, one of the best moments of that workshop and being on stage and talking to everyone was when I asked, has anyone heard of Ahab? And all of the hands in the audience went up and then questions ensued, but it just felt like we had, we'd done our job about getting the word out and that so many people had already had profiles. Um, and, why it's important. It's not just important to find, you know, streamline our process and make it easier for everyone. The thing that I find it the most useful for is finding those hard to find voices that we're getting asked to find so frequently these days. So PRH as a whole has really embraced this whole diversity of voices. So the type of narrative voice we need to find is is a little bit, um, I don't know how I'd describe it. We're, we're having people, so we need to find someone who's French who can do a South African accent and a Portuguese accent. So we're getting thrown these curveballs that um, that need a fit. Um, and, and 
we those accents come about because there might be characters from different cultures or the the narrator is the narrative voice isn't just you know some girl from New York like me or yeah. someone from the Midwest or it's someone who whose dad is Irish and whose mom is Italian and what would she sound like um, and we're really trying to be uh, thoughtful about those choices. That's cool. I know that you brought that up in the recent uh, APA uh, webcast that that you were on as well. Um, so it it almost sounded then like, and I knew that this wasn't the case, but because you you mentioned the accents quite a few times, I started thinking. I wonder if they only use Ahab when they're looking for people with accents. So for the for the people who don't have a big accent or dialect repertoire and maybe only do generic um sounds like you know english as opposed to bbc english um mm -hmm. is ahab still a good tool for them to get on just asking for a friend uh, yeah, absolutely um i mean we also yeah it it definitely is i mean you know with each producer doing about 100 books a year we have tons of books that all are also just straight american narrations or whatnot. Um, I mean, we, we tell all of our seasoned narrators who have been working for us for years to get on there because when we we're doing these searches every day, and unfortunately, if your face doesn't pop up, we might not think of you immediately, even if we worked with you for years. Um, or the other side of that is that if we worked with you for years and you have some sort of talent that we don't know of yet, um, then it's another good way to be like, oh, I didn't know Cassandra Campbell could do this accent. I would have never thought of her for that role. Hmm. Um, but I think one of the really cool things that I've observed recently, um, and it's actually come out of kind of my Ahab talks and going around and meeting with actors and agents and all that, is I really appreciated how much um, actors are dedicated to growing their craft in audiobook narration. There are so many good workshops out there and um, mixers and whatnot. And people seem to be continuing to grow their wheelhouse of skills, um, even if they've been doing this work for 20 years or so. Um, and that was something that struck me when I was at, again, at that Scott Brick and Johnny Heller's workshop in January, um, that the vast majority of the audience were, were people who had been doing this for a long time and just wanted to learn more, learn more skills in terms of narration or, um, more about the business side of audiobooks as well um, and how they could you know, hone their business skills as narrators. Um, so, you know, I think also if, even if you only do, you know, your, you speak in your voice and you don't do accents, I think it's, it's a good idea to consider because, you know, the work out there right now, it's becoming more diverse. And, you know, as someone again, who loves children's literature and young adult and middle grade books, you know, the protagonists there, we're getting kids who are from, uh, not kids, we're getting the the characters are from, you know, Egypt or they're Persian or they're from China. And um, it's just a little bit more, not eccentric, that's not the right word, but, um, you know, it's not as just run of the mill American as it used to be. Sure. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. Um, it sounds great. I mean, it sounds like within a very short period of time, you've gotten this tool, which kind of started out and didn't do so well. And now all of a sudden you guys are using it all the time and that it's working really well for you. Yeah. It's just one of those things. I feel like with any tool, you, you launch it as kind of like a test or like a beta and you get feedback and you just continue to refine. It's kind of one of the crazy things about technology in general these days, because 
it's not like, for instance, Instagram came out and it, it is what it is. It's and and then if it's not useful anymore, it goes away. It's just any type of tool these days is continuing to evolve and change in order to suit its audience. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, no, it sounds great. So um, so you mentioned part of the what you do as a producer is you start looking at casting choices. Do you mm -hmm. at at PRH, do you have separate casting directors or as the producer is that one of the things that you're doing is the casting so yeah uh, as producers we're we're doing the casting um i know so penguin when we acquired penguin i knew that uh the director sorry the producers down there they would sometimes farm out the casting responsibilities because they were just handling so many titles they couldn't possibly do that all in-house and i know some other uh audio publishing houses do that as well, just because the volume is too large. Um, but for us, uh, one of the key assets of having so many producers um, is the ability to make those decisions in-house. Um, so yeah, when I'm, I'm sitting down to read a book, I'm, I'm thinking about what the right narrative voice is, who the characters are, um, what the character age ranges are, you know, the variety of accents or character voices that might be required. Um, so yeah, we do all of the casting in house. That's great. Well, I, I was thinking that you did it in house. I hadn't even thought about the fact that you might actually outsource that to a, a separate company, but I was just wondering if it was the producer or if there were separate people who were just in a casting department. It sounds like you as producers do pretty much all the casting. Well, yeah, what we've, um, again, because we've continued to grow something that, uh, a role that we created first for Darlene Sterling in our LA office. So, um, for those who don't know, uh, PRH audio, we have two offices. We have one, uh, located in New York and then we have our other one located in Los Angeles in Woodland Hills. And so based out of Woodland Hills, we have our post-production team. We also have our pre-production team. Um, and so Darlene Sterling, we work, all of the producers work very closely with her on casting for West Coast talent. So she essentially will be our conduit to actors or to agents. So if I know who I want to cast, I'll reach out to Darlene and say, hey, I need, you know, whoever, let's say, I need Julia Whalen for this book. These are the dates that I need her to record. We have the final PDF, the final text coming in on this day. Can you see what her availability is? So then Darlene Sterling will go out, reach out to Julia, come back to me with information. Um, and then she'll ask me which director do I want to pair her with? And then that's another step of the process where I think about, Oh, well, who, who will Julia work well with and who's available and who will like the subject matter and all that. And, um, Amber Beard, who's also located in our LA office actually does that for our New York office now. Hmm. Well, it sounds like you all work really well together. Um, mm -hmm. and, and that I'm sure that that makes for, um, a better product in the end. Um, mm -hmm. so, so you do the casting and you find a narrator and you decide who you're going to work with and you contact him and, um, you start getting things going. Um, now I'm wondering about the interactions that you have with narrators. Uh, what, what advice would you offer to narrators who are going to be dealing with somebody like, uh, PRH or other big publishing companies? I think... I've been, th I've been thinking about this a lot lately. I've thought about this for a while, actually, um, in the context of either directors or actors. And I feel like I always empathize with the fact that they're freelancers and you kind of have to be pitching yourself 
all the time to a certain extent in order to get work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the hard part about that is I think the best relationships I have with directors or with actors have this strong degree of authenticity, which, you know, can be hard to balance when you are pitching yourself. Um, so I always think of kind of the exposure factor in that, you know, come up to me, talk to me at a mixer, talk to me at APAC or at the Audis, come say hi, reach out on social media. If like you have something funny, you want to tweet at me or, um, leave on my Instagram profile. Um, I, uh, you know, I might not, I feel like you might not always notice people at first, but then looking back for some of the people I've hired, I think about the through line of where I first met them. I was like, Oh, I met them this one random time. Or like I was grabbing a beer with some actor and then they walked over and said hi once. And then I saw them three more times. And then at that point is when they kind of stuck out in my mind for some reason. And it wasn't, wasn't because they were pitching themselves. It was just because they were being a person and talking to you. Yeah, they were talking to me. I mean, at the same time, they were pitching themselves, but because we were just kind of, you know, at these mixers or at APAC or whatever, we're talking about not only their abilities, you know, they're talking to me about whatever books, whatever genres they like to record or what they've done in the past. But then we're also transitioning from that to getting to know each other, kind of like you and I are via this podcast. Sure. Yeah. You know, we're sharing knowledge about our industry, but we're also getting to know each other on kind of an authentic um, level. And I think for some people that's easier said than done. I mean, it's it's just easier for certain people than others. Um, also like if you're more of an extrovert, it's just easier. Um, so I think there are hurdles that come, come with it. But, uh, I always think about actually the APAC that took place in Chicago and at that APAC, I think Dara Rosenberg had been she'd emailed me or tweeted at me or something. There was some connection where I knew she was going to be there and she stuck out in my mind for some reason, I think because she does a lot of YA, YA audiobooks, And, um, I, I enjoy producing a YA audiobooks. I was like, Oh, this, this girl might be nice to meet. Um, I've listened to some of her clips. She sounds good. So she came over to me at some point when I was in the hallway, I think between, um, between talks and, uh, she was with, her buddy Graham Halstead and we, the three of us got started talking. I think we talked for maybe five minutes, five minutes, 10 minutes max. And then she and Graham stuck in the back of my head for months. And then I hired actually Graham three months after that. And I didn't hire Dara for like another year and a half, but she was always literally living in the back of my head. I was (laughs) thinking about her being like, I need to find something for this actor. But I think what's really tough is that, there are actors that I want to work with. There are like, there, there are handfuls of actors that I really want a project for, but if it doesn't come across my desk, there's, there's nothing I can do, you know? Sure. Um, Yeah. So it's all about the waiting game a bit and not, I said, uh, it's just, and not getting discouraged that even if we met and you felt like we had a good connection as an audiobook narrator and as a producer and you have good skills that I could make use of, you know, it might take two and a half years for me to find something for you, but it doesn't mean that someone else won't have something for you. It's just the title that feels really right for you for me hasn't come yet. Sure. And, and there's no way to force that. I mean, I know that my chances are virtually nil of getting a job as a YA 
first person teenage girl novel. I mean, it's just not going to happen, right? <laughs> so, so there are there are certain things that you just can't uh, you, you just can't avoid. And uh, but it, but it sounds great that you you keep people in the back of your mind, and it's all about those real connections up front. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So uh, so have you had any experiences that are uh, maybe a little not so good? Um, dealing with narrators and uh, they're memorable, but not in a good way. No names, no names, no names, no names. (laughs) Um, I don't know. I think that I can, uh, number one is prepare, do like prepare for your session. Um, I've had someone recently who, you know, I was kind of taking a chance on in a certain way and, and the director had spoken to them. I, if with new narrators, I always do my best to pair them with directors who are really sensitive to, what new narrators are going through and how to kind of coach them to get them where they need to be in those sessions. And I had paired someone with um, a director who did just that and called her up and they talked on the phone and they talked about preparation and lo and behold, she shows up to the session having not read the book and not knowing any of the characters. And um, I mean, I think that's the number one faux pas just preparation is, is so key. And I think, I mean, I think, most people know that, but especially as new narrators, just remember to read the book. Think about the characters. If you have questions, questions are a good thing. Ask the director, come back to your producer. You know, we're there as assets for them too. You know, we're juggling a lot, but if you guys have insights, if you have questions, we definitely want to hear them. Um, and uh, I guess another faux pas I would say is, I think I have this like it's a it's a hard thing again because I know actors are always trying to pitch themselves and getting themselves in front of you but having good email etiquette is also uh something that always sticks out in my mind um you know if someone emails me once and they say hey I'm coming to APAC like I'll see you there like they usually send me their AHAB link or whatever it is and I'll check it out I'm like great I'll see this person APAC but then if they continue to follow up every week or every few days it's it's it gets to a point where like I can't respond to this person. And um, I I always get a guilt complex over that because I feel, I feel bad for not responding to them, but just being, I think etiquette just in person or online is really, um, is something you have to, you know, tread carefully with. (laughs) Always good advice. Um, Like you said, most people know that when you were talking about, uh, you know, prepping the book, that may be true. Not bad to hear it every once in a while, though, just to keep it in the forefront of your mind. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I will say, I think I, I've, I've been really lucky in that I haven't really had any bizarre or weird experiences in a, in a long time. And I feel like I've worked with uh, people, even if I've worked with a lot of new narrators, not new actors, but people who are kind of new to audiobook narration. And usually they're really hungry and excited to do their best. So they're going above and beyond just as much as the seasoned narrators are. Um, so yeah, I haven't had too many things that I could call out, but those things stuck out in my mind. No, it makes a lot of sense. Have you had any, uh, have you done any work with celebrities? Yeah. Um, yes, I'm working, I'm actually working on a super secret project right now, which people will hear about soon enough. Um, Oh, I missed it. If only I, I had done this two weeks from now. <laughs> I know. Yeah. We'll follow up later. It's it's going to be released. It looks like in the beginning of June, I'm working on something that um, I'll just vaguely say it's, um it's surrounding 
feminism and it's, it's not directly connected to this whole me too movement and, um, times up movement, but it's all about feminism and young girls and women's empowerment and acknowledging, um, the women who have been influential throughout our history. And that is going to have a celebrity factor in there. So I guess I'm doing a little teaser here, but Very uh, cool. Very cool. we'll have to follow up later and I'll tell you what that is. Um, but yeah, I've, I've, I've worked with, um, a number of celebrities over the years. Um, I, uh, I actually have, I know I'm not drinking tonight, but I have a nice bottle of Icelandic vodka. Um, is it vodka or is it gin? Let's see. Uh, it's vodka, Icelandic vodka here on my shelf from, uh, Jason Biggs and his wife, Jenny Mullen, um, from their session. And I really loved that session. It was actually, it was Jenny Mullen's, one of her comedic memoirs. And, she brought in her husband, husband, Jason Biggs, who many people know from American Pie as well, well as a number of other things, um, as well as her son, Sid, to record their dialogue. And uh, it really became this whole family affair. I felt like I was like part of their family by the end of it. And uh, I don't know, I really love that process of getting to know people throughout the course of a recording. And often as a producer, you you get that more. A little, I find I get that more when I'm doing more kind of political stuff or, um, celebrity stuff simply because there's more handholding that goes, that's involved there. Mm -hmm. So I usually, I like to pe let people do what they do best. So I don't often like to interfere with the process that's happening in the studio unless something goes wrong. Um, I give my notes up front and then I let the director and the actor, um, you know, get into their creative space and, and let them do what they do best. Um, but with, political stuff with celebrity stuff, you, you want to make sure they're comfortable and there is, um, an extra degree of diplomacy there that I kind of have to be involved in, but that I really enjoy being involved in because it gets you away from the desk. It gets you into the studio more. Um, so yeah, that makes sense. Um, that that's an interesting distinction though. So normally once it gets to the point where somebody is recording, you're not involved in the process. It's just the director and the narrator. You are, but it's more loosely, I would say. And I, I like to get into the studio as much as I can. Um, but the trouble is balancing that versus getting your work done during the day. Because mm -hmm. if I'm, if I'm away from my desk, then I'm kind of neglecting other programs that I'm working on. So often I'll, uh, I'll grab my personal laptop and I'll go sit in the studio just to listen for a while because I mean, I love being in the studio. It, uh, it, it, it always reminds me why, why I do what I do. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I was in the studio a few months ago. It might, it might even be longer than that at this point, but for this book called what the night sings. And it was a story about a young girl who was a singer before the Holocaust and she was Jewish and she got taken to the camps and, you know, she, I will, it's not giving away too much because this happens early on, but she essentially, um, gets out and she had lost her voice essentially during the Holocaust. And it's about the regaining of her voice and all of that. And that was, you know, we were talking about music earlier and that was the most recent program that I didn't really think about adding music to it. Um, I did, we did hire an operatic singer so she could sing the lines of music throughout the book, but in terms of instrumental music, I hadn't really thought about adding that to the book, but I was talking to the author who is a musician herself. And 
used to perform um, before a slew of things happened to her. And we ended up hiring a violist and a pianist to record bits of music throughout certain significant parts of the book, throughout the beginning of certain chapters. And I really do think it it added something to the recording. And I was so moved when I was sitting there in the studio with the author and these and the musicians because it was, I don't know, I was sitting there, we were both, I, Dan always makes fun of me when I ever say this, but we were like, base, we were weeping, I won't say that, but we were definitely tearing, tearing up as we listen to this music and thinking about this young girl's journey. Um, so, so yeah, I think, I think some of the most moving parts of my job are when I do get into the studio, but it's just that juggling act between, uh, being the person, you know, behind the scenes and, uh, kind of indulging in that creative process. Well, I have to say, as somebody who generally speaking, doesn't like the addition of music from your description right there, it actually sounds even to me like that would be a perfect candidate for something like that and how it really could add to it. I haven't listened to it, so I don't know what I, what my reaction would be, but just your description there was kind of moving in itself, um, given the story and mm -hmm. how music affects me, how music in that story might just fit perfectly. So I could certainly see that. Yeah. So you really love the, uh, the creative aspect of it and, and being involved that way. Um, what do you see for yourself going forward at PRH? I don't know. It's been, it's been such a ride so far. I, uh, it's, it's a good question. Something I've really loved recently, um, is this kind of outreach. I've been doing a lot more of this kind of public speaking or podcasting and I really like talking to actors. I really like, I don't know, I guess maybe my, uh, my family's actor background is coming out of me because now I want to get back onto the stage and talk to people more and get the word out about things. So yeah, that's great. Yeah. I really, I really love being on panels. I love, I love public speaking. I love participating in these workshops and podcasts and, um, yeah, I think it's just really cool as a whole that, um, I think, you know, again, I come from a writing background and, and I still love literature so much, but so much of writing has moved into podcasting or audiobooks, And it, it's such, I don't know, it's such a more interpersonal experience. And I love the sharing of ideas that happens on the stage or with questions or, um, I don't know. I like making myself an asset to people in the industry because I am really passionate about it. And I, I I think we're really lucky to work in this industry um, just with the community that it brings. Yeah, I, I can't sing the praises of the audiobook community highly enough. Uh, I've just been so impressed in the time that I've been doing this and the people that I've met and the interactions that I've had. Uh, it's a great family. I love it. Mm -hmm. um, well, that's great. Julie, this has been this has been fantastic. Thanks for coming on the show. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Where can uh, where can people find you if they want to get a hold of you? Sure. Um, well, you can find me via Instagram or Twitter. I am, uh, I'm at Juliana and Wilson for either of those. Um, and yeah, that's, I mean, that's the best kind of public facing way to reach out to me. I'm always there posting on about, um, like recent productions or what I'm working on. And I love to see what actors are working on too. You know, I, uh, I think it's a good idea to have a good social media presence if you're an actor. So, uh, so yeah. All right. And uh, Ahab, uh, that, if I remember correctly, that is ahab.us? 
Yes, ahab.us. And if you're an audiobook narrator or want to get into audiobooks, it is the best way for you to have access to all of the PureH producers. Um, as I said, we're casting off of it every week. So, so yeah, go on there, upload clips. I always say, you know, upload, you know, show your range on there. So upload clips that are about two minutes long, show your fiction, nonfiction sample. If you do kids or YA, upload that. If you can do any accents, have that. If there's anything else you want to show off on there, go ahead. Um, you know, the more, the better. That's good to know. The more, the better. So how many clips do you recommend people have? I mean, is there a limit? I think there might be a limit of 10. I, I could be wrong with that. I think if you go up to 10, I think that's absolutely fantastic. And just as a side note, um, that's really useful for us because me as a producer, I send clips of the actors and putting up for a, a gig to my authors. So essentially, if you have a well-labeled clip of saying, you know, this is me doing an, a fictional narration uh, with a French accent, and that's what I need, I can easily download that clip and send it off to an author. If it sounds right, then they can say yes, and then we're off to the races. So the more specific, the better. Yeah, good to know. I'm sure that there are going to be a few people signing up after this. I know that I was, uh, I became aware of Ahab, I think it was late last year. I don't remember, uh, I don't remember what it was that I heard, but I became aware of it. I checked it out and then it dropped off my radar because I didn't do anything right away. And when mm -hmm. I heard the webcast that you did a few weeks ago for the APA, I thought, oh yeah, did I actually finish that? And I hadn't. So right that very night, got my oh, profile started. I uh, still need to upload a couple of clips, but uh, I certainly I'm I'm getting clips ready for various things right now. And so that's one of the things that's on my list. And I'm sure it will be on other people's list, too, after hearing this. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah. All right. Well, that's great. Thanks a lot, Julie. I, uh, I really appreciate your time. I hope your uh, strawberry lemonade was good. My uh, my lime Ricky was great. Awesome. Yeah, I can't wait for, to go for a run now. I'm well hydrated. All right. That's good. Have a great run. All right. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Julie. Well, that's it for tonight. Many thanks to Julie Wilson for stopping in. I'm really glad I got some insight into how Penguin Random House produces audiobooks. And I hope you did, too. You can find the audiobook speakeasy on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean, and all the apps that pull from iTunes. And you can find me at richvoiceproductions.com, where I've got some samples and links to audiobooks I've narrated, a place where you can sign up for my monthly newsletter, and where I'm also posting episodes of the audiobook speakeasy. If you're enjoying our speakeasy chats, please leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you're not enjoying them, please find a podcast you do enjoy and leave them a review. If you think this show is educational, entertaining, or valuable simply because it gives you an excuse to sit down and enjoy a cocktail in an otherwise hectic day, I'd really appreciate it if you could visit patreon.com slash audiobookspeakeasy and donate a buck or two. You donate per episode, but don't worry about breaking the bank if I decide to publish an episode a day. You can set a monthly maximum. The countdown continues. It's only a month and a half until APAC. Whether you'll be able to make it to New York or not, I hope you'll join us for a few more drinks here in the Speakeasy. I've got some great audiobook professionals that'll be stopping by soon. Until we see you here in the Speakeasy again, I hope you can find some time to enjoy an audiobook. Cheers! <laughs>